Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 104, William Ortman, Confrontation in the Age of Plea Bargaining. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Will Ortman. Will is an assistant professor of law at Wayne State University Law School, where he teaches criminal procedure and evidence. His scholarship focuses on the criminal justice system, particularly plea bargaining. Our podcast today features Will's new article, Confrontation in the Age of Plea Bargaining, which is forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review. In it, Will asks how the Confrontation Clause might be interpreted to make it more relevant in an age in which most criminal cases never go to trial. In particular, he argues that current jurisprudence, which views confrontation as a trial-based admissibility rule about testimonial statements, is overly cramped and doesn't serve the clause's original purpose. In response, Will proposes that the Confrontation Clause be reinterpreted to involve a pretrial right to criminal depositions. My conversation with Will discusses where he finds support for this move in the text and the precedent, as well as whether these criminal depositions are practical or even desirable as a policy matter. Will, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much, Ed. It's great to be here. So your article is in many ways about making the confrontation clause mean something or to make it have at least a little bit more bite in a world with plea bargaining. And in particular, you sort of find inspiration from a set of other Sixth Amendment cases that deal with the right to counsel. Can you tell us about those cases? Sure. So it's a pair of cases that the Supreme Court decided in 2012, Lafler and Fry. And what the court did is it said that the right to the effective assistance of counsel applies and extends to the plea bargaining stage. And it was a very controversial decision within the court at the time. Justice Scalia wrote his typical dissent explaining that, that this was going to cause the sky to fall. But the basic idea was that plea bargaining has become the criminal justice system uh, itself. That's actually something that the court says in one of the opinions. And because it is the criminal justice system, because it is the, the way that we actually adjudicate the vast majority of cases that end up in convictions, the right to have a lawyer effectively represent you applies there too. And so those were both cases in which a really bad defense lawyer basically failed to convey a plea offer to to their clients, and their clients ended up getting a, a much worse result because of that. And the court said that's ineffective. And then there's a separate question in ineffective assistance cases of whether there's been prejudice. And, and so there's a complicated remedial situation there. But what the court did is said, the Sixth Amendment in its counsel clause, we can make it relevant. We can make it, it matter in today's criminal legal system, in today's world of plea bargaining. Um, and so my proposal in this paper is, is, hey, let's do the same thing with the confrontation clause. It's only a few words separated from the counsel clause in the Sixth Amendment, and we could bring it into the, the 21st or even just the, the 20th century as well. 
to make this happen, you have to reinterpret the confrontation clause, at least as it is currently interpreted. And I think you do this through a series of rather clever arguments. So let me start with how most of us as evidence scholars view the confrontation clause, which is basically as a rule of admissibility. You argue that's wrong. Why is that wrong? And how is it that we should be viewing the confrontation clause? Yeah, so I don't deny that the confrontation clause has significant implications for admissibility, but my argument is that they're indirect and that what the confrontation clause does directly is it announces the substantive rule. If we want to be really elaborate about it, it's a substantive rule of procedure, but it's a, a substantive right of a defendant to be confronted with the government's witnesses in a criminal prosecution. The text of that doesn't sound in admissibility, right? You could imagine a way to write that where it would be about admissibility. The constitutional text could have said something like, no witness shall testify unless, or, or something like that. But that's not the way it's worded. It's worded in terms of what the defendant gets to do when the government presents a witness. That said, there's significant implications, right? Because if the government calls somebody as a witness and then the defendant can't get confrontation because the witness is, isn't there, because the declarant is unavailable or deceased, that's the context in which this comes up a lot, you're going to have a violation of the substantive right. And so the way that I see the evidentiary implication of the confrontation clause is as a prophylactic rule to avoid inevitable or even just likely violations of the substantive right, courts will exclude under Crawford the formulation is testimonial evidence unless the declarant is there to testify. So ultimately, that doesn't have significant practical limitations on, on sort of how the Crawford doctrine applies in, in cases that go to trial, but it's sort of brush clearing on the way to my claim that, that says that look, the confrontation clause can have implications beyond the context of trial because it is a substantive right and not merely one implicates trial admissibility. So is the idea very similar to Scalia's point in Crawford that it is emphatically a procedural right and not a rule of reliability? Yeah. So the way that I interpret or understand the animating purpose of the Confrontation Clause is this idea that, that adversarial testing is the way to achieve reliability and, and fairness and a, and a whole bunch of values like that. And it's a procedural way, right? I mean, it's in that sense, very much consonant with Justice Scalia's take that this is a procedural right rather than just sort of a free-floating reliability concern. And I guess it also dovetails well with Rich Friedman's view as well. Okay, so even if we view it as a substantive right, then there's the problem of the language of the clause, which talks a lot about witnesses. Doesn't that mean trial? It's a couple of thoughts. So one is that the Sixth Amendment itself starts with defining its scope as criminal prosecutions, right, not trials. And criminal prosecution often ends, or not ends, but the trial is an important stage in it, subject to later stages of sentencing and appeal. It's traditionally, in terms of the original design of the criminal process, it was the critical stage. Not anymore. But once we understand a witness to be one who bears testimony, and once we understand testimony to be something that can happen outside of the trial context, which is the move that the court makes in Crawford, I think we've left behind the idea, or at least we're not tied to the idea that a witness is, has to be somebody at trial. Right? A witness is somebody who provides testimony. And then testimony for what? Well, I say that the Sixth Amendment says testimony for criminal prosecution. There have to be 
limits now because the witness definition that you're giving seems to be awfully capacious. Surely we can't expect defendant access to all witnesses at all times. So who then does the defendant actually have the right to confront? Yeah, so you're right. There's, as a practical purpose, need to be some sort of limiting principle. So the limiting principle that I propose is a critical adjudication. And this is sort of borrowed, again, from the counsel clause jurisprudence, where the right to counsel applies to critical stages. And there's an elaborate body of case law defining what a critical stage is. So I say we can analogize to that and have an idea of, of a critical adjudication, an adjudication that, as a practical, meaningful matter, settles the defendant's guilt or establishes culpability or the level of culpability. And so then what's a critical adjudication? Well, obviously a trial is in cases that go to trial, but sort of the fundamental reality of our system is that most cases don't go to trial. The place, the venue for actually adjudicating cases, by and large, is a plea bargain. And so I say, looking to the reality of our criminal legal system, just like the court did in the cases that I, I talked about before, Lafler and Fry, we ought to recognize that in 21st century criminal justice, there are two critical adjudications. There's trial for a few cases, and there's plea bargains for the vast majority. And so we ought to understand people who are provide a testimonial information that a prosecutor uses in plea bargains are Sixth Amendment witnesses too. Now, what does that mean as a practical matter? Well, it's a little tricky because plea bargaining is informal. It can be fast developing. It can change quickly. So we sort of need, as a practical matter, a fixed point. So the fixed point that I propose is charging. The government's charging decision, returning an indictment or an information, sort of starts the process on plea bargaining. And so I say that's a fixed point that we can look to. And what we ought to say is that a person whose testimonial information the government relies on to charge a defendant counts as a Sixth Amendment witness. It means that a defendant ought to have the opportunity to confront those people. How does the confrontation work then? So your proposal is to have effectively a criminal deposition. How do you envision these depositions running and how might they help the defendant and perhaps the criminal justice system in general? Yeah. So criminal depositions is exactly the proposal. I call them Sixth Amendment depositions, and they would work a lot like discovery depositions in civil litigation and in criminal litigation in the handful of states that allow it. I can come back to that in a minute. But the government would disclose a list of its testimonial witnesses, and there'd probably be some motion practice in a lot of cases about whether a witness really counts as testimonial under the various formulations that the court's given us in Crawford and the post-Crawford cases. But once that list is established, the defendant would then have the opportunity to have his or her lawyer sit down and under oath examine the witness. The possible that witnesses would want to have their own lawyers. The prosecutors could certainly be there and likely would, would want to be in lots of cases, maybe do their own examination as well. So why would that be good? Why would that help the criminal system, the criminal legal system? How would it help defendants? I think what it would do is provide information, right? It would provide adversarially tested information about the strength of the government's case. And ultimately, that's, as I said before, I think the confrontation clause is out there to try to promote. So one feature of our plea bargain system is that there's informational deficits because 
the defendant can't really know how credible, how effective the prosecution's witnesses would be unless the defendant goes to trial and the, the cost of going to trial is often too high to be practical. So defendants have to make decisions about pleas in the absence of information about how likely their conviction would be a trial. And if we think about accuracy in terms of well, the defendant who is most likely to be convicted at trial, who has a near 100% chance of conviction, ought to have the sentence that's closest to what the post-trial sentence would be. And the defendant who has a realistic prospect, though probably not a likelihood of acquittal at trial, gets a, a lesser sentence at, to reflect that. Then I think that the depositions could provide that kind of information and, and fill some of the informational deficits in the current plea bargaining world. Could also benefit prosecutors, right? in terms of providing some of that information to prosecutors as well. I mean, they more often will have had the opportunity to talk to these witnesses, but talking to somebody and seeing how they actually perform under examination are different. It can also be valuable, I think, to prosecutors in that the depositions might signal to defendants that their case really is really is weaker than the defendant would like to believe that it is. So if a defendant takes the deposition of the, you know, the investigating officer or the complaining witness, and that person is clearly credible, and they can see that a jury would credit their testimony at trial, well, that might convince a defendant to accept a prosecutor's offer that the defendant was otherwise inclined to fight. Right? So I think that, that this kind of information could benefit the system and it could also benefit both sides of criminal litigation on their own terms. So I have to admit, that your proposal makes a lot of sense to me as a policy matter. But here's my primary objection to the proposal. And I think it's a bit similar to the cost objection that you raise in the paper. But at the same time, I think it's a little different. By adding this deposition layer, aren't we effectively defeating the point of plea bargaining? The whole point of plea bargaining is to resolve cases quickly and efficiently, hopefully when the defendant acknowledges basically that the defendant is guilty. And here I concede that I'm ignoring issues about bargaining power and whether you have prosecutorial overreach. But in the ideal, the defendant realizes that the defendant is guilty, and so this is a way of ending these cases rather quickly. At least to me, what it seems that you're saying by proposing the deposition is that we should just simply have more trials, which is something to which I wholeheartedly agree. So why aren't more trials the solution as opposed to introducing this additional layer with the deposition? Yeah, I mean, I think that the more trials it would be a great solution. I also think that the criminal trial has been quote, unquote, vanishing for more than a century. And I think that there's no realistic reason to think that that's going to change or that the key institutional actors have any desire for it to change. And so this is sort of a second best kind of proposal. Yeah, trials would be great if we had more trials. What this does is, is unpacks one aspect of the trial, right? The adversarial testing of the government's case and would allow that to happen outside the trial, right? So the problem with trials from a defendant's point of view, is that they're so all or nothing. You either take the trial and you get all of those procedural rights that go with it, and then if you lose, if you're convicted, 
you pay a really, really heavy penalty for it. And because the penalty is so heavy and because the way that our criminal statutes are structured, that the prosecutor in, in a lot of cases can unilaterally set the price of a plea, it, it's just not a feasible option in lots of cases. Now, obviously not all. There are cases that are exceptional for one reason or another. But in lots of cases, I think a trial is not a realistic prospect for a defendant. A deposition is different, right? A deposition is not this all or nothing thing. I don't think we would expect a defendant taking a deposition to result in the kind of a, a punishment penalty that the going to trial does. And so it's feasible. And so I sort of agree with you about what the first best world might look like. But this is a proposal that's very much geared for the world as it is and not the world as I might like it to be. The other serious objection that I see, and you talk about this as well in the article, is perhaps prosecutors will simply require a waiver of these depositions before engaging in plea bargaining. So just as prosecutors give discounts for not going to trial because they're expensive, won't prosecutors similarly give discounts for not going to deposition because they also are costly? Well, and you could think of that either as a discount for not taking a deposition, or you could think of it as a penalty for taking a deposition. Those are two sides of the same coin. And I definitely think that's possible. I definitely think that depending on the culture in a jurisdiction, that certainly might happen. So I sent this paper early on to Al Schuler, who is one of the giants of plea bargaining scholarship. And he said, look, they do these depositions in Florida. Why don't you just call some Florida lawyers and find out if they waive them all the time? So I did. I got in touch with some Florida lawyers. Florida is a big state, lots of people, and they have criminal depositions. And from what I gather, talking to a few leaders of the defense bar there is they actually have depositions as a routine part of their practice. And so, so sure, in theory, we might expect that to happen, that depositions become just a negotiating chip that defendants trade away. But that seems, at least as far as I can tell, I don't have rigorous empirical scholarship on this, but from talking to a few lawyers, it seems like that's not the way it's developed there. I practiced before I went into teaching in Iowa, which is another of the states in which criminal depositions exist. And sort of that's my firsthand experience too. So I definitely think that's a possibility. And I think that, again, depending on the particulars of the criminal legal culture in a jurisdiction that, that might happen, but I don't think we should necessarily expect it to become dominant in the way that plea bargaining over trials is dominant. You know, the other way to look at it is prosecutors can try to extract penalties or discounts, however you want to think about them, for pretrial motions as well. Yet we do see pretrial motions to suppress, pretrial motions to dismiss in criminal litigation. You don't see them in the majority of cases, but you, you see them frequently. And so that suggests that when you take a right out of the trial context and you move it to a pretrial context, you give it a value of leverage that it can't have in, in the trial context when the price for a trial is so high. Here's a broader question for you, and I think it relates a bit to my earlier point about trials. I'm not a criminal procedure historian, or in fact, any historian of any stripe for that matter. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it strikes me that there is something very cyclical that is going on here. We start with really basic trials in the distant past, which were often without counsel and without a lot of procedural protections, and defendants were railroaded into convictions. And we realize that that's a problem. So we impose all kinds of procedural rights. And we are, our hope is that those rights will improve accuracy. And then these 
rights and restrictions prove too cumbersome or expensive, and what we see is the rise of plea bargaining. But now I think what's happening is we realize that plea bargaining has the same problems as the pared down trials from the past. So what we're doing is increasingly imposing rules and restrictions on the plea bargaining process. Is is that in fact the cycle? And if so, is there any way to break out of this? So I think that I agree with a lot of what you described as a cycle. So the increasing complexity of trial at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, right, that is sort of one of the leading theories for the rise of plea bargaining. It's not, not the only theory, but it's sort of one of the leading explanations. And I think it probably has a lot of explanatory value. So the pendulum, right, it, it, it does start to swing. But then the last part of the question was, well, now isn't the pendulum swinging back? And I would say, not really, not very far. I mean, there is this move that the court makes in Lafler and Fry to to extend the right to counsel, the right to effective assistance of counsel to the plea bargaining stage. But that's not a huge swing of the pendulum. I think that the pendulum would have to come a lot further in order for, for us to be able to describe this as cyclical. I think that to a, a very large extent, plea bargaining remains an unregulated enterprise. And principally what I mean by that is that there's very little in the way of judicial or, or other checks on the degree of coercion that the prosecutors can apply, right? So as long as a sanction is theoretically within the universe, the set of what is available to a prosecutor, it is fine for a prosecutor to threaten it in order to sort of lever a defendant into pleading guilty, whether that's a charge that is out of all normative proportion with conduct, whether it is going after a family member unless the defendant agrees to plead, so on and so forth. So sure, I think that the cyclical pendulum swinging back and forth is something to think about, but I don't think it's swung so far back in the direction of regulating plea bargains. Final question for you. What's next for this project? Are there future directions that you're planning to take this work or that you'd like others to take? Yes, that's such a great question. So maybe a couple of thoughts. One is, I mean, I'm not so naive as to expect the court to jump at my proposal in the near term, but my daydream is that some judge somewhere will be interested in it. And if that happened, there would be details to work out. This paper does not seek to exhaustively go through every possible permutation of what a Sixth Amendment deposition would look like and all of the procedure would be around that. So if some judge somewhere was so inclined, there might be works filling out details. But the other direction here is just the broader project of constitutional criminal procedure modernization. So as I was just talking about, we've got a lot of constitutional criminal procedure that is designed with trials in mind, that is designed for a criminal legal system built around trials. And so Lafler and Fry were this first step in modernizing that constitutional criminal procedure for the world of plea bargaining. I think that the Confrontation Clause could be a good next step, but then there's lots of steps beyond that. So thinking about things like discovery and, and the charging standard, which is something that I've written about before, and, and you know, even double jeopardy, there, there's all sorts of ways in which we ought to rethink whether we can make our criminal procedure fit better with our criminal system as it actually operates in a world of plea bargaining. And not just criminal procedure, but also evidence. And in many ways, I think about Stephanos Bibas's podcast episode where he talked about rules of evidence for the plea bargaining context. And 
course, Stephanos is now sitting on the third circuit. So maybe you have a welcomed or a welcome recipient for some of these ideas. I should be in touch with lawyers in the third circuit. Well, Will, thanks for a great discussion about confrontation and how we might be able to make it more meaningful in the age of plea bargaining. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much. There's much to recommend in Will's thoughtful piece. The proposal is deceptively simple. If we extend depositions to the criminal context, we can assist defendants in making better plea bargaining decisions. That proposal itself has been around. As Will noted in the interview, a number of states have criminal deposition requirements. And as he discusses in the article, the ABA debated the merits of this kind of proposal in the past. But to find the criminal deposition requirement in the Confrontation Clause requires some careful and delicate maneuvering within the doctrine. From viewing confrontation as a substantive right rather than an admissibility rule, to drawing on the right to counsel cases Laffler and Fry, to reinterpreting the term witnesses against. In all of these moves, Will shows a deft touch in the article. He also manages to wisely circumscribe the newly found right so that it coheres with the existing doctrine and doesn't seem overly broad. In the end, though, I don't know where I stand on Will's proposal. As an evidence and proof researcher, I can't help but be attracted to any proposal that increases information and light. But I also have this nagging sense that we've been here before. By adding more and more procedural rights to plea bargaining, aren't we slowly turning it into trial? And if so, why don't we just go back to trials, or perhaps some kind of simplified trial? But however it is that I come out on Will's proposal, it certainly made me think, and hopefully it did for you as well. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.